This episode is sponsored by Indigo, which brings together companies committed to activating agriculture as a nature-based climate solution. It enables farm innovation that can increase soil health, carbon sequestration, and profitability potential. Learn more at indigoag.com greenbiz. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, why Morgan Stanley is investing in sustainability startups, the company helping P&G and Mercedes-Benz replace petrochemicals, what net zero looks like from across the pond, and why sustainable aviation is coming to an airport near you. It's Project Runway, this week on 350. It's July 9th, 2021. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, still celebrating her independence, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. How are you this fine holiday-ish week? <laughs> yeah, short week, uh, but lots to do. Uh, no, just great. Had a really enjoyable uh, long weekend and uh, ready for all that follows. Uh, uh, the fireworks are not supposed to happen around here, but boy, did they happen unbelievably uh, oh. from, you know, on, on, on Sunday night, the 4th, uh, from, you know, 8.30 to 12.30 in the morning uh, and, and at yeah. full speed, not just a few lame little local things, but just, you know, industrial strength. <laughs> it sounded like someone yeah. was playing a snare yeah. drum for most of the evening. <laughs> Yeah, we, I have to say, we had a lot of those too. Uh, my neighbor, uh, you know, we we were very good and respectful of the uh, requests not to do that. But uh, yeah, there were tons and tons of people here in my town doing the same thing. I don't know. Like everyone must be happy to be outside or something. I, I, I don't know. But, it, you know, hey, it's it was Independence Day and um, it was a celebration and uh, the official fireworks that I watched were very cool too. So yeah, well, I'm glad it's and my dogs in particular are glad that the Fourth of July is behind yeah. us. Yeah, yeah. But you know what? Let's explode over into the weekend review. Well, let's start off with one of my favorite topics, sustainable aviation, and in particular, sustainable aviation fuel, and in particular, particular, sustainable aviation fuel certificates. Now, this is a new uh, animal that was uh, has been just recently created by the World Economic Forum, uh, RMI, the Rocky Mountain Institute, and the Energy Transitions Commission create a mechanism for companies and other large travel buyers to pay a little extra to offset that the travel by not just paying to have some random thing, you know, around aviation fuel, but actually to pay to have a certain amount of aviation fuel delivered to an airport. And all of this to jumpstart the market. And, um, 
you know, it'll be interesting to watch this, but this is exactly how solar really got to scale with companies saying we're going to invest a little bit extra to help build this market. And before you know it, uh, solar is the not just the cheapest source of energy in the world, but this cheapest source of energy in history, according to a stat I just saw from the International Energy Agency. And that got there because uh, a number of bold companies, and we've talked about them for years, you know, Google and Amazon and a bunch of others made a commitment to invest in these things, even when it costs a little bit extra. So uh, this, uh, I don't know how it's going to work and who's going to want to do it, but I'm sure I find it fascinating. What do you see it here? Yeah. So I, first of all, I want to give props to uh, Liz Morrison. She's our mobility analyst. Um, She's helping fill in um, and working on the Verge program while Katie Fernbacher is out on maternity leave, a new mama. And uh, I wanted to, one of the things that struck me was that they will begin piloting this certificate with the Sustainable Aviation Buyers Alliance, um, which is a a number of big companies. So companies like Netflix and JP Morgan, Microsoft, Boeing, Salesforce. I know there's others in here. Um, And those companies are going to be the ones figuring out (laughs) how you count for this, um, how you talk about it, right, and write about it and communicate about how you're using these things in, in order to inspire other companies to, to do the same, potentially. And I, this strikes me as particularly timely, just given the fact that other companies are starting to go back to the office. They are starting to have meetings. JP Morgan, you know, who I just mentioned, I think they're one of the banks that's requiring all of their people now and, and to come in in New York five days a week. Um, you know, that means that company meetings with groups in locations that are not their home are going to come, come next. So I, this is the, as companies begin to travel again for business purposes, I think it's really, um, important and, and actually just a good chance to push reset on how you think about it. So, you know, it can become a habit potentially as, as they do it, um, you know, I know that uh, P- just to go back to the people that were involved with helping get this thing off the ground, so to speak, PwC in the Netherlands uh, was very involved in figuring out the accounting for this. And I think that's, you know, that's, as you know very well, that's going to be the, one of the most important things for the companies that want to use it and how they can claim um, and how things are retired and registered and so forth. So that's, that's all super important. And um, that's, that's what's next. Yeah, and PwC is the kind of company that is is going to have the biggest impact since they are, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of road warriors. Um, I noticed that uh, Deloitte and Boston Consulting Group are two of the nine companies that uh, so far have joined the Sustainable Aviation Buyers Alliance, along with Netflix, J.P. Morgan Chase, Microsoft, Boeing, uh, and Salesforce. Um, and the one thing that's not in this article that I kind of wish it was is what is the cost differential? Mm. Uh, I mean, the cost of, mm-hmm. of sustainable aviation fuel is is four to five or even 10 times more than for conventional uh, what's called Jet A, the standard fuel used in, 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 uh, in aviation. But it doesn't translate this into the passenger mile because I'm, mm-hmm. I'm guessing it's just a few pennies per passenger mile to to pay for the extra, the extra cost of the fuel. And of course, if you're, you know, taking a uh, let's say a 5 or 6,000 mile round trip cross country across the US 
trip, uh, those pennies add up. And if you're doing that across hundreds, thousands, tens, or even hundreds of thousands of, of trips a year, that becomes, as they say, real money. Uh, but the, the question, and I think the big challenge will be, is how quickly can this ramp down, the price of this ramp down, and therefore, uh, and which is, of course, goes hand in hand with how quickly the, the volumes ramp up. And will there be other incentives, whether they're uh, regulatory incentives, tax incentives, or perhaps maybe just maybe public you know, acceptance or requirements or pressure mm. uh, or preference to to travel, uh, you know, on flights with sustainable aviation fuel. But this is a significant thing. Aviation being one of those, you know, what, what the UN calls hard to abate sectors. Uh, the industry itself is was originally committed to uh, 50% carbon reduction by by mid-century, but everyone else, every other industry is going to zero, net zero by mid-century. So they're now talking about that. I don't know if they've made the official commitment and if it's going to be for globally or just international flights or wh who's actually covered in that commitment. But this is going to be a, uh, uh, you know, this is an important industry to to take on. And, and so if this is the way it happens, if this is what it takes to get the industry to uh, and the entire airline ecosystem to start bringing in sufficient quantities of sustainable aviation fuel, uh, this is a really uh, important story. And I, I look forward to tracking this over time. But. You know, let's move over to a story that you wrote, Heather, this week uh, on uh, a startup helping Procter & Gamble and Mercedes-Benz and presumably others replace petrochemicals. Uh, tell us about 12. 12, formerly known as Opus 12, uh, which is a company that has uh, is known to our Verge audiences. They were part of the Accelerate program in the past, and we've written some, some pieces about them. But they're a company that was founded by three um, individuals. I spoke with one of them, Atosha Cave, the chief science officer, about a massive funding. <laughs> they got a Series A round, $57 million. Like, whoa. I mean, that's, that's quite a lot of money for, um, for just a brand new first round. Uh, and part of that reason is, is these, these folks are doing something that's pretty, pretty hard and pretty transformative. They call themselves a carbon transformation company. And in plain English, what that means is they're taking carbon dioxide and they're actually scrambling, re-scrambling the molecules and basically turning them into in materials that could be used to substitute for petrochemicals. So Procter & Gamble is using their technology to help uh, decarbonize Tide, so light laundry detergent. And Mercedes-Benz is working with uh, 12 to replace the materials in some of the um, uh, components that are used in car frames. So like the they, they call the, the C-pillar, which is like the thing right behind the, the windows in your car. It kind of keeps things in place, the windows in place. So they're working with those companies on, um, they've been working with those companies on small scale projects uh, they, with, with systems that are about the size of washing machines. And what this money is going towards is these, you know, basically to scale up their reactors at the production site. So like in a manufacturing facility so that they can basically take that material and plug it into the manufacturing process. So I know that's probably a long-winded explanation of what, what they're doing, but um, carbon to value, they're basically turning car, you know, captured emissions, 
into something that can be used in something else. Uh, and, and it's a pretty wide range of, of uh, possibilities that they can help address. Yeah, I, my, my mind's exploding a little <laughs> bit on how you scramble a molecule that only has, uh, you know, a, a one carbon and two oxygen. But, uh, I, you know, I trust the science here. Uh, is this primarily about substituting for fossil fuels about is it about sequestering carbon uh and can you know can, well if so will it sequester enough carbon to make a difference what's the uh, sustainability play here so it's primarily about allowing other companies to take fossil fuels out of their products so there are petrochemical you know so a lot of cleaning pro you know a lot of consumer products have fossil fuels in them. I, don't, I think people don't think, the, 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 the average layperson thinks fossil fuels equals energy, but fossil fuels and, and oil and, and you know petroleum jelly, I mean, it's used in so many different things. And what they're trying to do is help companies take that out of their products. Um, and so they're not, they're not capturing the emissions. I want to be clear. They are working within the site to, you know, if there could be, if there's a, a capture system there, they could take that cap carbon that's, that's captured. It's, it's not like a, a direct air, a air capture kind of carbon removal play. It's more about turning what is there into a material that can be used elsewhere. So, um, you know, it's, that's kind of what they're doing. And it is a little bit, you know, mysterious and, and they don't have, you know, they're, they're using this money to industrialize their products, their, their technology into, like I think I said before, something that's a container, shipping container size. Um, they've been around, we've been talking to them for a while. It's one of these good examples of why you have to be patient. Um, but they have some pretty darn good references. They're also working with the uh, this little group called NASA uh, hmm. on uh, yeah on on how this could be used uh, in in different applications. So pretty amazing uh, round of funding for a company uh, that that we've been watching for a while and will continue to watch. Last month, the Morgan Stanley Institute for Sustainable Investing announced the five companies chosen for the first cohort of its Sustainable Solution Collaborative, an initiative empowered to seek breakthrough and innovations related to sustainability. Each of the companies will receive $250,000 along with support to help them scale their ideas. Joining me to offer more details about the collaborative is Audrey Choi, Chief Sustainability Officer and CEO of the Institute. Hello, Audrey. Hi, Heather. Great to be with you. Great to have you. First question for you. When did Morgan Stanley create this collaborative and why? Why, why is it doing this? Yeah, um, we announced the um, creation of the Sustainable Solutions Collaborative actually last August, so August of 2020. Mm -hmm. you know, this was at this point, uh, you know, five months into the pandemic, and um, it was not a result of the pandemic, but it really reflected a moment where it was sort of the culmination of our thinking. For uh, quite a while now, we've been focusing increasingly on the issue of the convergence of all these mega issues that we're facing, these large sustainability challenges, whether it's climate change, social justice, you know, public health, income inequality, um, and really increasingly over the last you know, year or two, we've been thinking these, these challenges are really converging. Business as usual 
is not getting us to the solutions fast enough and um, really at a at great enough scale. And so what can we do to try to really sort of galvanize business as unusual? Um, and so last summer we said, you know what, we're going to just kind of go and try to something really big and innovative um, out there. And we're going to announce this quest for breakthrough thinking that thinks about sustainable is- sustainability issues not as rifle shots and small problems, but as systems issues. And how do we get this whole sort of tangle of issues and how can we address it? We then said, well, look, we could do a bunch of different things. We could um, you know, run a usual application process. And we decided that what we wanted to do to, to really get that business as unusual and those breakthrough thinkers is um, that we were gonna do something non-traditional, uh, which is instead of a, a traditional application process, we basically said, you know, we're gonna go out to the smartest people that we can uh, identify across all sorts of different sectors around the world and ask them to be anonymous nominators. Um, and ask each of them, who are the most people you know? And that's what led to this um, multi-month journey since last August until uh, recently of sifting through all these really interesting ideas and saying who should be the handful of initial breakthrough innovators that we could work with. I didn't realize it was anonymous. I think you had, I forget what it said, like 150 nominations. I forget how many mm-hmm. nominations you have, but um, that's very cool that it was anonymous. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, because we didn't want people to to get sort of, um, yeah, we, we, we wanted to be anonymous because we didn't want people to get lobbied and say, mm-hmm. oh, I hear you're a nominator, put mm-hmm. me in. Mm-hmm. And we didn't want it to just be whoever was the most, um, you know, re- relentless uh, sort of you know, applicant, but we really wanted to go to people who we respect incredibly from, from academia, from policy, from, um, you know, from, from finance, from all sorts of different walks of uh, life and professions to say, who do you think just is, has some really next level ideas? And that if we could connect them to the network of resources that Morgan Stanley has, the connections that we have with large corporations, with governments, with finance, with investors, that they could potentially get to a different sort of lift off and breakthrough. Right. So how does the solutions collaborative fit with the other things that the Institute does? You know, I think it's really, it's very much an outgrowth of it. And hopefully we'll also be able to draw on it. Um, you know, if you think back, so Morgan Stanley has been focused on sustainable investing for a very long time, right? It was actually back in 2009, when really the rest of Wall Street was not thinking about sustainable investing. Um, actually, when we launched our global sustainable finance group, uh, which dates back to 2009, I would say for the first good five or seven years, the most frequent question that I was asked when I would introduce myself, they would say, so what exactly is sustainable investing and why is Morgan Stanley doing it? Um, so you know, back in 2009, we were determined to kind of plant the flag to say Morgan Stanley believes that sustainability is actually something that we need to address as part of our business, our wealth management, our asset management, our investment bank. It's part of the business, not a lovely extra corporate social responsibility, only nice to have, but really part of the business. And for the better part of the last 10 years, we've spent a lot of time really building that case and enlisting and working with corporates and investors and individuals so they understood how they could um, how they could access sustainable investing. And fast forward to now, where I think people have really understood that sustainable investing is something that um, really helps you enhance the investment process if you understand environmental and social issues. And it's great. So we're, A, we're delighted that, that now there's such broad 
mainstream acceptance of the of the importance of sustainable investing. And the Institute, our job has always been to say, what's next? How do we kind of look around the corner? How do we try to forge some new ground? And so, you know, we said, look, it's great that it's mainstream now. Um, and, and we think that we need even more. So what can we do to try to really accelerate innovation? And so that's what led us to, to think of the uh, Sustainable Solutions Collaborative. Uh, and, and really this quest for, you know, business as unusual, because we all know that there's great ideas everywhere, every day. We just can't afford for the great idea that's going to help us with climate action or social justice to take the regular course of a decade or two of in a garage, friends and family funding, if you're lucky enough to have friends and family with funding to give you and wait for 10 years, 20 years to maybe get to scale. We need to say, if this is a brilliant, potentially breakthrough idea, how do we get it to scale fast? Now, I mentioned the money, which is part of this getting to scale. You mentioned network before. So what are the, what are the, the resources? You know, how will Morgan Stanley work with these organizations? Yeah, so it's really three main components to our program. As you said, the $250,000 um, uh, money prize grant, whatever you want to call it, um, is something that will hopefully help help kickstart um, and, and give some additional wind to the sales of these ideas. But I want to first make, make one important clarification is that um, they're, it's not just companies. We actually deliberately in our, um, in our application and our nomination process said, if there's a brilliant breakthrough idea, if that's a professor, if that's a nonprofit, if that's a person, if it's a concept, that could also be eligible, right? Because this is not just a classic sort of seed stage accelerator VC play, right? Those are great. This was deliberately saying, where are the best ideas? And so actually of our five, um, of the five breakthrough innovators from our first class, um, three are companies, one is um, an academic um, project and another is an initiative of a bigger uh, of another project. Um, and so we're really saying it's, it's about the idea rather than the corporate form. So the $250,000 for each of these ideas will help them turbocharge in different ways. But again, I think we think that the bigger scale is going to come from being able to say, um, each of them, each of the groups is going to have a Morgan Stanley um, guide and a mentor who's really going to say, what connection do you need to go to scale? Right? Is it if you're if you're working on plastic waste reduction and redoing consumer trends, how can we combine? How can we connect cyclists to large consumer product companies or to large distribution mechanisms or to a whole different form of you know IT and tech fulfillment? What are those kinds of connections that would really help you uh, branch out? And then thirdly is the piece of it that's collaborative. I think is really important because again, so many times an idea is great. But in a silo, we can only do so much. But when you connect them, and we're already, even after just a few weeks working with, uh, with these uh, innovators, we're already starting to see some connections um, that you wouldn't have normally expected, you know, but, and, and across continents, across sectors. Yeah. You, and you just described the, the functional kind of organization of these, these projects. Tell us a little bit about the sorts of um, projects and startups you pick, because they're pretty diverse. As I was looking, I'm like, these are not like each other. Um, <laughs> you know, tell us a little bit about what the, each of them is doing and how how do you see them working together? Yeah. So, um, so look, so what's really fascinating is that we have, we have two that are in Africa, one is in Asia, one is in Europe, one is in the US. Um, and Pharma is a Ghana-based 
health tech startup that is really focused on how do we revolutionize the drug supply chain across Africa to, to make pharmaceuticals and healthcare more accessible, more affordable, and more effective. Um, and what's really what I think is among the interesting, among the many fascinating things about this is, you know, there this is not innovation in terms of a new discovery in a petri dish, right? This this wasn't discovering a, a, a new medicine. This is really just saying how do we better, you know, bring medicines to the point of service to the patient at the right price at the right. Thing. So it's really about a logistics and a tech and a, you know and a transformation. Um, I think they, for example, could have some really interesting cross learnings with Cyclus who is in Indonesia um, working to try to help reduce plastic waste. So if you think about um, Indonesia and other economies like that, where you know, 20, 30 years ago, it was kind of considered a revolution to have these penny sachets of shampoo or soap so that people who couldn't necessarily afford to spend the money for you know an eight ounce jar of something, or you know, that they could get a penny's worth of you know, one shampoo, one wash, which seemed great until 20 years later, you have billions of non-recyclable, improperly disposed plastic sachets choking the rivers and the oceans there. Cyclus is saying, how do we turn that on its head? And how do we say, we still wanna be able to give people the amount at the price and volume that they need without the plastic waste. And so they're actually bringing together technology, you know, e-commerce, point of service with kiosks that come around and you can actually put an order in, you know, on your, on your device to say, I need, you know, oil, shampoo, et cetera. Um, so they, I think there could be some interesting logistics collaborations there. You then think about someone like um, Sun Culture that is looking at um, um, inclusion, uh, inclusive finance, um, renewable energy, sustainable ag, and bringing all of those things together to empower small farmers in Africa to make their practices more profitable and more sustainable. They, I think, potentially can have some great learnings with MySoc, which is a, uh, you know, a, a brainchild of two brilliant professors in the United States talking about soil carbon and sustainable um, practices and monetization. And then you have Trees' Infrastructure, which is an open source platform based in the UK, operating across Europe, thinking about trees as infrastructure, right? So rather than thinking about trees as decorative lampposts, actually thinking about the value, the infrastructure that they provide, how you invest in them. So when you think about all these on the one hand, they're like, whoa, these are all over the place geographically, sectorally, approach-wise. But what they all have in common is they're all kind of thinking about a different twist on things, right? How do we think about trees as infrastructure? How do we think about um, you know, getting consumer goods not as a let me hand over, let me sell you this object with packaging and then you're responsible for it. But how do I become part of a loop with you as a consumer? How do we bring together carbon and soil and farming and monetization? And, you know, so all of these things, I think really all of, all of these brilliant uh, innovators think about things in a systems way, right? And think about this. None of them are thinking about a single transaction that is just a one point in time. I love how you wove all those together. That's great. <laughs> nice job. Um, what what helped them rise above the other nominations? I mean, was it that systems view, the way that the way that you could make them work together, or in the initial um, selection, we weren't so much thinking about them together, but really looking for ideas that in in and of themselves were integrative. Right, we're understanding that you can't solve, you know 
you can't solve healthcare if you don't solve access to healthcare and to pharmaceuticals. And you can't solve that if you don't solve logistics. You can't solve that if you don't solve, you know, all of these different systems. So for everyone, there were there were hundreds of other ideas that we came across that were brilliant, but some of them were sort of brilliant in their particular silo. And I think that a lot of the sort of business as usual and funding as usual and scaling as usual processes that we currently have in, in, in what is a pretty you know, high specialization world that we live in, a lot of those might have, you know, been able to be fine in a traditional silo. Each of these were ones where we thought they're thinking about this problem the way that we all live, right? And in an interconnected systems way. And if we can help them plug in even more, that hopefully this could really be transformative. And then I'd say once we all, we kind of got to the cohort of five, we were like, oh, there's some really interesting connections between them. And we're, we're just starting on that journey with them now. So we're super excited to see probably connections that, uh, that we haven't even thought of yet that they will. One final question. Why are innovations of this nature so critical? That's such a great question. Look, I, I really believe that, um, well, first of all, as I said, we, we need so many more solutions so much more quickly than we're currently getting them. But, and I really think that the innovations in how you put things together can be just as powerful, if in some cases not more powerful than a new de novo discovery. Um, and, um, and look, this is, this, it really has been kind of my mantra, this, especially this past year, that we have to understand our problems are interconnected. Right. Um, unfortunately, COVID has been, you know, a, um, an incredibly powerful example, right. That, uh, that, that social justice, that, um, racial issues, that economic issues, that, um, healthcare issues and climate change issues are all, 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 all inter interconnected. So we have to get the solutions that are also understand that problems and, and solutions like all of us, right, live in an organic interconnected world and we can't solve them in sort of these sterile silos. So innovators who think about that way in that sort of fertile cross-referenced kind of way is where we think we can get the most leverage. So we're really excited about that. Well, thank you so much for dropping by GreenBiz350 to talk about it. Oh, well, thanks so much, Heather. This has been really great. Really appreciate your spending the time on it. You just heard from Audrey Choi, Chief Sustainability Officer and CEO of the Morgan Stanley Institute for Sustainable Investing. We've been talking a lot lately about net zero and with good reason. So many companies and governments have headed down that path. But given our perch here in the United States, it's been a largely North American perspective. So I thought I'd check in with James Murray, Editor-in-Chief of Business Green over in London, to talk about how Net Zero is playing over there. Hey, James. Hi, Joe. Good to speak to you. It seems like Net Zero is really off and running there. Can you give us a little bit uh, perspective of how it's shaping up? Yeah, it's it's absolutely flying in many ways um, ac across the business community and, and most encouraging, I suppose, across the policymaker community as well. So the UK became the first major economy to set a net zero target uh, back in 2019 in law saying, you know, a legally binding goal saying that we'll get to net zero uh, by 2050. Um, that then informed the medium term targets that the UK set, these sort of legally binding carbon budgets that were significantly strengthened 
uh, for the early 2030s. So putting massive pressure on the government to then come forward with bolder policies, uh, which they haven't yet come. We can yet done. We can probably talk about that a bit more. Um, and then that was matched um, by other countries. So France similarly have put in place a, a, a national net zero target in law. Um, and then the EU followed through, um, similarly ramping up their official target for 2050 from an 80% cut in emissions to net zero. Um, and then one of the sort of big upsides of net zero is once you have that long-term target, kind of the logic flows from it. So the EU followed that that big long-term target with more ambitious short-term targets for 2030, which are in turn are about to unleash a major new legislative package uh, designed to help accelerate decarbonisation efforts to ensure those short-term targets are met. So it kind of has become a bit of the North Star for um, a lot of corporate initiatives and a lot of governments um, in Europe. Uh, and, and and it will be one of the defining trends at the COP26 Climate Summit uh, to be hosted in Glasgow in November. But it's not without controversy as it is here. There's conversations about the cost, for example. Talk a little bit about what that sounds like. Yeah, so I mean, there's two big sources of controversy coming from two different ends of the political spectrum. One is the kind of the critique from a lot of environmentalists and campaigners. Greta Thunberg's been quite vocal on this, as have others, arguing that net zero can be oversold, um, that, you know, it's a cover for some companies to continue to pollute. And I think, you know, that's a big, complicated debate and that has some merit in it. Um, and then the, the flip side is from, from the, I suppose, I mean, broadly, you'd call it the right wing, but it, it, it's a bit more complex than that, that can we afford to do this? There, there's There's been a big focus on the short-term cost and some of the political sticking points that we're going to start to see. Um, we, we're starting to see a, a big row in the UK, and I think it will be emulated in other countries, about gas boilers, um, which seems, seems quite a mundane topic to have a big culture war fight over. But, you know, this idea that we are going to have to switch from gas boilers to heat pumps or hydrogen and these other technologies that will inevitably lead to changes in people's homes um, and, and potentially significant upfront costs and investment, that's, you know, when you get into those kind of practical impacts, that's where you're starting to see a bit of backlash and a bit of opposition to a trend that generally people are very supportive of. Yeah, that whole greenwash thing is really interesting. The term greenwash is just really lit up over the past year or two as net zero has has ramped up. Uh, and, you know, each of us, you and I have each written about uh, sort of I've written about the backlash and you wrote a piece about in defense of net zero, which I thought was was interesting. Um, talk a little bit about, you know, why you uh, seem to be less concerned about the, you know, greenwashing part of this and just I think you see it as as, as uh, it's it's all good in a certain way is that how I did I correctly characterize that I, I think that's yeah I think that's pretty fair I wouldn't go as so far as say it's all good I am very um, I mean I wrote this as it, I suppose it was an essay really it was sort of 6,000 words long in the end in defense of net zero it felt like it needed quite a lot of unpacking um, and that was a response to the criticism of, of, of a, another essay that was written describing net zero as a dangerous trap, um, which which Greta Thunberg endorsed and, and got quite a lot of traction. Um, and I must admit, I kind of agree with all of those concerns and those critiques of net zero. It, you know, it could be hijacked and it, it could be used to cover up bad actors. Um, but in this sort of long piece, I sort of sketched out that on balance, though, there's a huge number of upsides to the net zero narrative that we don't want to throw away. You know, it has delivered more engagement from political groups and corporate groups and investors um, around the idea of decarbonisation and climate action than we've ever seen before. You know, no other 
framing mechanism has delivered such levels of investment and you know, multi-billion dollar investment programs in support of net zero it seems slightly churlish to just kind of throw that away because we we don't like the few bad actors who are, are hijacking it and also those bad actors will be there regardless i mean as we've seen from the recent sting on exxon and, and various other maneuvers by um high carb various high carbon interests you know they're not suddenly going to pack up shop just because you find the precisely right framing mechanism to describe climate action that that seems um, really hopelessly naive from my perspective so um those critiques of net zero i'm not sure they they hold um and then you start to get into the strengths of net zero in that it does mean that every aspect of the economy has to decarbonize unlike these 80 percent targets that we used to have it is relatively simple to understand i mean in the uk we've got quite a high level of public understanding of it and very high levels of, of public support um it, it does allow for, you know, it's quite technology neutral. It allows for us to pursue different potential trajectories for decarbonizing. Um, yes, it presents challenges. Yes, you have to make sure you've got those short-term action plans and you've got, you're delivering real tangible progress. And it does ask big questions about how we use offsets and to what extent they're relied upon. But those are all things that the advocates of net zero, the people who are kind of looking at this in a really detailed way, um, through the various standard bodies, through the various reporting agencies, everyone's everyone's aware of those concerns. They are looking to fix them. Um, so I think, as a you know, as a sort of guiding principle for this green industrial revolution we need to unleash over the next thirty years, I still think it's very very powerful, uh, and it's arguably been more effective than any previous attempt to to mobilise these forces. You can't see me right now, but I'm a little green with envy here around the uh, idea of you know, widespread public support for, for net zero. Uh, we certainly don't have that here, at least uh, not on the political side and the populist side. It still seems to be either unknown or uh, misunderstood or, or uh, in, in certain sectors just simply uh, not appreciated. Uh, how did they, how did you get there to the public support part? What did it take, or is that just a, a natural aspect of of uh, the population over on your side of the pond? I mean, that's a fascinating question, isn't it? I mean, I think there's probably a number of factors that that got us there. Um, I mean, a lot of a, a degree of credit has to go to kind of the centre right in the UK, the sort of the Conservative Party, which is is a sort of I suppose a broader church than the Republicans are in the US. You know, the, the Republicans are, and I, I think Dave Roberts, um, your your fellow sort of US journalist, writes quite eloquently on this. The Republicans really are an incredibly extreme political organisation um, globally compared to myriad other right-leaning parties um, in, in not just the Western world, around the world full stop. So whilst we have had those extreme voices and we've had flirtations with climate scepticism over here and we've had all those various talking points about the costs of inaction, broadly, um, the centre-right in the UK has remained supportive of climate action, using different policy measures to the way the left would. Um, but but still broadly looking towards the same goals and that means that the sort of the consensus has held and and people then respond to tribal leaders don't they so you know the public perception has has been broadly sort of flowed from that in in many respects um and and that's been mirrored exactly the same across europe i mean there's there's there are parties that are climate skeptic there are parties that more closely 
aligned to sort of, I suppose, the Republican approach on this stuff and are really dismissive of it. But they are, they're right there at the extremes. More The, the centrist parties um, on both right and left have increasingly treated this as an existential challenge and a sort of defining challenge for the coming decades that they want to associate themselves with. Um, so it's held. The, the big worry here is whether it will continue to hold. I mean, we've sort of had... Um, real examples of the culture war starting to fire up in in the UK uh, and Europe, um, particularly around Brexit. Um, I mean, France had had a big backlash, this Gilets jaunes uh, protest movement that was sparked by Emmanuel Macron's move to put in place carbon pricing on on fuel. And that delivered a sort of public backlash and, you know, a bit of a cliche, but French style riots on the streets in protest. And, and that has sent a warning to politicians that they're wary of moving too fast. They don't want to sort of implode the consensus around the need for action because they, they recognise that if you do, then it all becomes a hell of a lot harder. Uh, but broadly, they have protected it, and that does allow a path to being steadily more ambitious on this stuff. Although, of course, it, it, it needs noting that, you know, it's still not ambitious enough. Um, you know, the UK, I think, has the best track record of any G20 country of, of decarbonisation over the last 20, 30 years. And our independent climate change committee has repeatedly warned we're still not on track to meet net zero. Yeah. Um, we, need, we need to be moving considerably faster than we are. Well, I don't think there's any argument about that, at least uh, in our shop. But we will continue to uh, look east for leadership and uh, and track how you're doing and uh, keep checking in with you, James, um, about how things are shaping up over there. Uh, James Murray is editor-in-chief at Business Green. You can check it out at businessgreen.com. And uh, we'll look forward to talking more. Thanks, James. Thanks, Joe. Much appreciated. Alas, all good things must come to an end. And with that, I introduce the last two segments in our audio highlight series from the 2021 Green Biz 30 Under 30 report. We hear from this week, Cassandra Vickers. She is Senior Clean Transportation Product Developer at National Grid, and she speaks about equity in the transition. And Lawrence Lumbagas, Sustainability and Strategic Risk Advisory Services Manager for Deloitte in Southeast Asia. And he addresses reforestation in his native country of the Philippines. Hi, Green Biz. My name is Cassandra Vickers. I go by Cass, and I am a Senior Clean Transportation Product Developer at National Grid. We've been having the tough conversations at work and making sure that at our, at our core, our programs that we're building and these new products that I mentioned that we're building actually impact our customers, all of our customers. Because if you think about utility programs, our legacy of programs have been in such a way that they benefit the wealthier and the people who have um, for example, the we have rebates on uh, some gadgets that you have to own a home to be able to take mm. take advantage of those rebates. And if you're in a disadvantaged community, which tends to be our black and brown communities, you're not going to be able to take advantage of those discounts that we offer. And so we've been really intentional about 
the programs that we're building and being sure that they're actually going to impact our disadvantaged communities, um, which is especially difficult because electric vehicles are seen as this like flashy luxury brand um, that is expensive. And that's true. But there are also other ways specifically with fleet vehicles that we can impact directly our disadvantaged communities. Just think, for example, school buses. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot, lots of kids are bused to their, their schools. Um, so if we can particularly target putting electric buses in predominantly black and brown communities, we can start to clean up the air. We can start to make health impacts on the communities, both the students and the families, the elderly that live in that area, just by transitioning a diesel bus to an electric bus. My name is Lawrence Lumagbas, and I am a Sustainability and Strategic Risk Advisory Manager at Deloitte, and I'm also the co-founder of Green Impact Global. So um, I think I'm most proud of two things. Um, so one is my current organization, which is Green Impact Global. So it's a pa- passion project that I am doing right now, and it is related to uh, basically the, the main goal of the uh, this passion project is to drive reforestation efforts in the Philippines because, um, I mean, as mentioned earlier, that that major storm and um, that happened in my city, the, the negative impacts could have been lessened if there were more trees, if there was less deforestation happening. And unfortunately, the statistics say in my country that we only have around 23% forest cover in the country. Um, and that is, you know, alarming sort of statistics for me. So this project is focused on reforestation initiatives and also making sure that um, in, in the long run, we hope that it turns into a carbon offsetting mechanism for countries um, to, to be able to um, offset their carbon emissions through forest projects. Because there's a lot of areas in the Philippines that unfortunately are sort of bogged already because of illegal logging and also commercialization. So um, I'm, I'm proud of this passion project of mine because people are becoming more conscious about the importance of climate action. And I believe it's it's a great way to not only lessen carbon emissions or offset carbon emissions, but also revitalize the biodiversity in, in my country. Um, and we need a lot of forests because as mentioned, you know, we experience a lot of floods and storms and having forests mitigate you know, the flooding that would eventually go down to cities. If, if there were forests in the mountains, they could absorb more of the water. And of course, the, the biodiversity as well could be maintained. Um, so that's one green impact global. And it also, I also joined, you know, several competitions and it was recognized as well um, in as a global winner for the Enactos Action Accelerator, which is a business, SDG business plan competition. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to learn more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. While you're there, check out our free newsletters. We publish seven of them every week. Check them out, greenbiz.com slash newsletters. And we welcome your comments, your questions, your tips. Please write us. We love to hear from you. Email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. We'll be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.
This episode is sponsored by Indigo, which brings together companies committed to activating agriculture as a nature-based climate solution. It enables farm innovation that can increase soil health, carbon sequestration, and profitability potential. Learn more at indigoag.com greenbiz.